You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's episode is going to be a bit of a short one, and I'll explain why. Uh, in podcast land, the podcast universe, if you will, just so you guys know, uh, each all your content is hosted on a like a host site. And my site that I use is Buzzsprout, and it allocates me a certain amount of time each month to allow for content. And my plan is is pretty liberal, actually. I think I have about up to six about six hours of content total uh, per month. But this month we did some episodes that kind of went into a little bit of overtime, which I'm totally cool with. I have no problem with people getting into overtime. It makes the subjects, you know, it makes the topics more interesting. Guests come on, they like to talk, they like to share. I'm totally up for that. But I didn't want to just not put out an episode this week because I ran out of time. So I wanted to just kind of give something quick. That would be a topic that I'm familiar with, something that I ho- hope might really uh, kind of maybe inspire some beginners or even some veteran keepers to consider this one particular species, even though I've, I've kind of covered it a bit. I wanted to get into a little bit more detail in terms of my experiences with them. But before I do that, I did want to take a few moments to thank everyone for a couple of milestones that have happened recently. In particular, I want to thank everyone for supporting the show with the five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. You guys know who you are. I know who you are. I appreciate it. It helps the podcast get out there to a broader audience, which is ultimately what I want. I don't make money off of this show. This is just something that I do for fun. It's my way of giving back to the hobby. And the more people that appreciate it, that's really what I want. And I'm sure that that's what you guys want too, is to really get the content out there so that people can continue to learn and pick up things, you know, grow their appreciation of the hobby. So I want to thank everyone for that again. If you have a few moments, take a few, you know, take a few moments, take a few seconds, whatever. Nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts is definitely appreciated. And my bigger thanks, though, I want to say thank you to everyone for really just listening to the show and appreciating it. We recently exceeded uh, over 10,000 downloads for the entire show. It, it actually went from 10,000 to like almost 11,000 in the course of like a couple of days. And I want to thank everyone for that. Uh, that just shows me that everyone out there is listening and appreciates that. but. I want to make it very, very clear that all of you out there listening, you guys are what makes the show. You're what gives this purpose. So I appreciate that. I appreciate everyone listening. You guys want to, you know, give me feedback. There's topics you want to get into. There's things that you maybe want to cover in the future, guests that you want to recommend. Email me, amphibicast at gmail.com. If you don't already follow on social media, I'm not a big social media person, so really just my Instagram, at Amphibicast, is the best way to kind of keep up with me. I'll post pictures that are on stories and stuff like that on occasion. So uh, I'm not a big social media person, but like I said, you want to follow me, that's the best way to do it. So all that shameless, uh, <laughs> that shameless self-promotion out of the way, I want to get into tonight's topic. So tonight I want to talk about a species that I have had a lot of success with, I, I, I kind of wanted to say luck, but really just more success because some of it was luck, but some of it was also kind of uh, a bit of work and a little bit of thinking of outside the box that I had to put into. But this species is generally considered a, anything from a beginner to an intermediate, although even advanced keepers, I think, can appreciate these things just for everything that they, they do. They're pretty bold. They're brightly colored. They feed well and they they reproduce fairly easily, but there's a couple of caveats which we'll get into. But if you haven't already guessed, this is pretty much my favorite species, which is Epipetobates anthonii. In particular, it's the Santa Isabel locale. That's the one that I keep. So just to start off, if you guys have never kept dart frogs before, 
this is definitely a good species to consider as a first, assuming you have some experience dealing with amphibians in general. If you haven't already, go check out the top 10 beginner species episode. That's a good one. I made some references to different species, but this is this is this species is up there on that list. So if you're just getting into dart frogs and you're trying to pick a first species, I would recommend these guys, despite what people say. They're a little small. They can be a little bit fast, a little bit jumpy, but on the whole, I think that they're pretty hardy. So why don't we start off just with some background information? We'll start off with a little natural history about where they come from and what their life cycle is like. So they're endemic to Ecuador and Peru, uh, not a tremendously wide area compared to some of the other species like Aratus or even Pamilio. I was actually surprised because they're so hardy and adaptable, I figured that they would occupy a much broader geographic area, but I'm sure that there's other factors that go into that. They're small. They're about one inch long from snout to vent. They are anywhere from kind of like a hushed brown up to a very, very bright red color with usually yellow or cream striping that goes from the snout to the vent. And that can be pretty variable, actually, even among individuals and, um, well, in captivity and individuals in the wild. In fact, there is some uh, pretty unique variation in the wild, which I came across that was, was pretty cool. Uh, I came across this paper that was published in the journal of, uh, it looks like it's Neotropical Biodiversity. I, I don't quite have the exact uh, date on the article and I, I apologize I don't even have the authors here but if you I, get, I did a Google search if you go on a Google Scholar search for neotropical biodiversity I think it was November 2020 that might have been the time in any event these researchers were able to find a partially leucistic Epipetobates anthonii in situ which was was pretty cool uh, the, the the photograph of it was really impressive. I mean, just if you just if you're looking at the frog from on the from top to bottom, if you drew a line from the snout to the vent on the left hand side, it was substantially leucistic, and it had almost a piebald appearance to it, which was really impressive. So, before everyone gets their hopes up, though, I don't think that this particular frog is going to contribute to anything bloodline wise in the hobby because it was collected for scientific purposes and it was euthanized to be studied so i wouldn't count on seeing any piebald or leucistic morphs of this species making it into the hobby any anytime soon but uh, fair is fair though i think we have enough to keep ourselves busy with but in any event yeah there will be some color variation i had a trio a uh, sex trio which is what i started off with about three almost four years ago which was um two males and a female and the offspring of those i had some variation now Keep in mind, the parents were pretty bright red and they had a, you know, very distinct solid cream stripes going down from snout to vent. And the offspring, I had one that was very, very red with very, very reduced white striping. And I had another one that was sort of a, a more of like a subdued red with almost no striping really. So I was expecting them to look very much like the parents, but in this case, they didn't. I've heard of different people using carotenoids to supplement the diet to increase the red pigmentation at different points from uh, adding them to the tadpoles diet up to the adults etc to the breeding age i'm not quite sure i haven't really gotten a handle on that yet but i did notice some variation among individuals so you, you you'll get quite a variety of different looking frogs that are even among the same the same locale here and while we're on locales there is also a similar species epipetobates tricolor which looks almost exactly alike they were on and off and on and off considered to be different species, the same species, etc. 
I'm not 100% sure of where they are at this point. I believe that they are still considered separate species, but I think that there is some discussion underway in terms of combining them again. So it's a similar species. I haven't kept anything that had the label tricolor, but I'm going to assume that their care is basically the same because for all intents and purposes, they're almost exactly the same species. Getting into where they live, most of the research that I could find that, that studied their habits in the wild basically said that they live among the leaf litter. And this seems to be true, although they do appreciate higher perches. The setup that I have the trio in is a 18 by 18 by 24 high exoterra. I have a, obviously the, you know, the usual setup. I have a drainage layer and I have a substrate barrier and I have a thick layer of magnolia leaves on the bottom, a half round piece of cork bark that goes up the middle. Uh, some bromeliads and some other epiphytes, etc. And they generally will hang out pretty much at any elevation, but they do prefer to be up higher when they're breeding. So when I have a individual or like uh, I recently separated the, uh, I separated the female out and the male really didn't have any reason to come up and call so more. So he just kind of hung around down by the leaf litter. And um they will make their way up and down. It really, it really depends. I mean, it's, to me, it seems the breeding seems to be, well, not breeding, I should say, but calling seems to be the thing. So you can expect to see them pretty much anywhere in the vivarium, but if you're going to see them high up, it's really going to be breeding. I've even had some call from right underneath the screen top of the exoterra. So keep your eyes peeled because they are fairly visible when they call. And if you can't see them, then you can hear them. And that's going to be my next point. So if you are into calling, if you want to hear things call constantly and loudly, <laughs> this is the species for you. If you want something that's quiet that you're not going to hear, maybe go with a Tinctorius or an Erratus or something like that. But these guys can really belt. They can really, really, really call out, especially for such a small frog. The males call almost incessantly. I'll have them call anywhere from like, early in the morning, just after sunrise until maybe about an hour after lights out. So they are diurnal, but just like anything else, I mean, people say dark frogs are completely diurnal. I have lots of individuals that I see out after dark and these guys will call after dark. In terms of egg deposition sites, mine seem to prefer film canisters. And if you haven't ever used film canisters, just to give a little bit of background, uh, back in the eighties, up until the 90s and maybe the early 2000s, people actually used film. You used to get film in a little, little black tube, a little canister. And most vendors will sell those or something similar to act as egg deposition sites. I placed mine throughout the vivarium at different heights, different levels. They seem to prefer higher up, despite the fact that a lot of the research I said, like I said earlier, says that they tend to lay their eggs in the leaf litter. Mine preferred the film canisters and even bromeliad leaves. So that was what I had the most success in was not... Uh, get, not giving them like a cocoa hut with a petri dish underneath it like you would with like tanks or phyllobators or something like that. I gave them film canisters, plenty of bromeliads. I basically gave them their choice and they would lay them anywhere from like completely visual, uh, excuse me, completely visible, like hanging off the side of a film canister or they would have them buried somewhere in the background in a, in a bromeliad leaf. But they would average about cent, about seven to 10 eggs per clutch. Out of those, I would get maybe really anywhere from maybe like 70 to 100% would develop. I wouldn't get duds the way I got with, with some other species. So I don't know if it was just that I got a good tree or what, but these guys pretty much consistently produced almost every two weeks. Now, the problem was the next stage. So the males will collect the, the tadpoles on their back. 
and it's actually pretty pretty impressive if you have like a large spawn you'll see a male with up to like maybe like 10 tadpoles just kind of wriggling around on his back mine did not like to deposit during the daytime i actually had pretty consistently observed males with the tadpoles on their backs waiting until after it got dark i would just sit there and watch them waiting for them to deposit i usually left like a 16 ounce deli cup with some water in it and that was where they deposited the tadpoles but i never actually saw them do it so mine seemed to prefer to do it after dark whether that applies to everybody i'm not sure but if you want to see them deposit you might be waiting a while the tadpole stage was difficult as of now, the general consensus is that they're not cannibalistic the way other species would be like tinks. Uh, the jury is out. I mean, there are ways to raise tinks communal if you want to kind of do like a Hunger Games thing. I've seen other people have videos where they have their tank tadpole set up in a way that it really doesn't encourage cannibalism the way it would other ways. But I don't want to get into tank tadpole care, but I've raised these guys pretty much every which way you could possibly imagine. And I'll tell you what ended up working the best for me. So I started off with just letting them grow out inside the vivarium. I figured all right, the ambient temperature in there is about maybe 75. I'll let them just kind of hang out, hang out in the deli cup. I put some, uh, some tadpole, you know, tadpole tea, some magnolia leaves, some some grape, uh, not some, I'm not sea grape. I'm sorry. It was Indian almond leaves, which actually worked pretty well because they kind of, break up pretty fast and the tadpoles did graze on them i tried feeding them spirulina i tried a whole host of things but i'll, I'll get into what worked in a few minutes but first i didn't have a tremendous amount of frogs develop excuse me tadpoles develop and get to the point where they were starting to metamorphose and pop out back legs so right off the bat i lost uh, let's just say maybe about half. So say out of 10 tadpoles that were deposited, maybe by a week or so later, I would end up with, oh, maybe half that, maybe end up with five. And not every clutch survived. And I, for the life of me, I couldn't figure it out why. So I tried changing multiple things. I tried raising them individually in cups because I would see the tadpoles graze on the remains of the tadpoles that had died. So I don't think that they actively cannibalized them. I think that what they were doing was they were just sort of feeding on them after they had already died, or, or maybe they were just grazing on whatever was bacteria, algae, or whatever was growing on the little uh, corpses. But I tried raising them individually in deli cups the way you would traditionally with tanks. I tried raising them communally in cups. I tried raising them communally inside the vivarium. I set up a very temperature-controlled aquarium with a bubble filter, uh, excuse me, you know, foam and bubble filter, heated it to about, uh, I tried heating a little bit, heating it up a little bit more around 76. And I, same problem. I had a lot of the fro a lot of the tadpoles just didn't make it. And then the ones that did out of those, out of the original 10, I'd say maybe one would morph out. And just about the time where they were starting to reabsorb their tails, I would put something in there. What I ended up using was like a, a little strip of styrofoam. That was like very, very, like a thin strip of styrofoam that would sort of float on the surface. And they would do that. They would kind of come up the glass at the size of the aquariums, et cetera, whatever. Uh, but very, very few failed to make it through metamorphosis. So once that tail was absorbed, I had very, very few that survived into the early stages of juveniles. So I thought to myself, well, what, what am I doing wrong? Okay, well, I tried all different temperatures. I tried all different methods of raising them together, et cetera. So what worked for me was changing the diet. I gave them a pretty much just a 
algae and just let them graze off of leaf litter that I had in there. And that's what I kind of understood was the way to do it. And I don't know what it, I don't know what it is. I don't know why or why not. But one day I had an idea. I said, I'm not having a lot of luck with these tadpoles. Let me try something a little bit different. Let me, let me try something with a little bit more protein. And I'd had a conversation with a guest a while back. And uh, he was telling me about some of the frogs that he'd observed in the wild and what were they eating? Because that's always the question is if we're trying to recreate a natural diet in captivity, well, what, what are we doing? So I tried to just give it as much variety as possible. And what did I have laying around? I was like, okay, I got uh, Rapashi's Beardy Buffet, which is predominantly black soldier fly, but there's some other vegetable matter in there. There's, I think there's like ground peas or, or whatever else, but I, I sprinkled a little bit of that in there. And I fed this one clutch pretty consistently with that, although bear in mind, you have to change the water pretty frequently because this rots. This doesn't rot the, the, like the little spirulina flakes and the fish flakes and stuff like that doesn't really foul the water. This stuff did. And that was ultimately why I ended up losing the the final clutch. But before that, uh, I had two clutches that, that I had, it wasn't a large spawn. It was maybe maybe five. So I guess I can't really say 100% that it was super successful. But the ones that I fed, the little bit of Beardy Buffet, those are the ones that morphed out and stayed alive. Though that Those few clutches that I had did the best. So if you are going to try breeding, that might be something you want to play around with diet-wise. I don't know if they need more protein to develop into healthier froglets or what. But in my case, that's what really made the difference. Only, like I said, be very, very careful because if you don't, I mean, this stuff is, it's a premix, it's a gel. So it's going to kind of absorb a lot of the water and it can foul the water quickly. So try it out. See if it works. If it works for you, let me know. I'd love to hear your feedback. But um, that's kind of been the, the, the theme, the consistent theme that I've heard about them is that it's very, very difficult. It's easy to get tadpoles. It's easy to get eggs, but it's very, very difficult to get them to morph out and stay there. But in any event... Uh, the couple that I had morph out before I ended up breaking up the trio, uh, they're still alive. I think I've got about maybe three or four of that last, like one or two clutches that, um, that survived and they're doing very well. In fact, most of them actually matured to be male. So I have about three or four additional males now that call constantly in addition to the other males that I have. So, uh, if you're going to get males, they're going to be noisy, but care wise, I've heard that they like higher humidity. Uh, I've heard that they've been found in leaf litter along riverbeds and um, and streams and things like that. I, I actually, I'm not a big fan of paludariums, but I do have kind of the overflow, some of the males that grew out from the last uh, the last spawn. I have them in sort of like a semi-paludarium setup. They don't really make too much use of the water, uh, the water feature, but uh, they tolerate it better than some of the other frogs. Because like I said, these guys are, especially the males, I don't know if I would do it with a group of females, but... The males are constantly looking for higher places up to call from. I don't know if this is just a more suitable spot for them to call from or what, but um, you know they'll hang out on the on the hardscape. They'll hang out on the bromeliad leaves and they'll just call like crazy. And so far, I don't have any females in there, so I haven't gotten any eggs, obviously. But uh, I'd be curious to see if they'll deposit them in the in the water feature for the paludarium. So if I do get a female in there, I'll keep you guys updated and let you know what happens. They are a little bit fast. I don't want to say skittish, but um, I mean, realistically, pretty much all dart frogs are skittish, regardless of of of, uh, of the species. But um, they're small. I have an issue with mine where they become so habituated to that glass door opening that they get a bit of an aggressive feeding response, and I have actually had them jump out of the terrarium and onto me. So, if you're not really comfortable with a really small frog, 
then you might want to reconsider it. But they can get some serious air and um, you want to be cognizant of that. So just, you know, bear in mind, if you are going to have these guys, mine did get a pretty aggressive feeding response where they would just jump up from the leaf litter or from the hardscape, look into the, you know, right into the fruit fly cup. So just keep that in mind with your husbandry. As far as feeding goes, mine are, this is the big, this is the big plus that I can see. Okay. As far as feeding goes, mine will eat pretty much anything from springtails up to just above eighth inch crickets. And I've even seen them take crickets that are like just below a quarter of an inch and they'll, they'll, they'll take them. My largest tinctorious won't touch pinheads at all. Yet these guys will eat them. So if you're looking for a species that could get by on pinheads for a while or, or hydei or whatever, these guys are a good choice because they will take the larger prey items that, believe it or not, a, larger, the, a lot of the larger species won't. So anything from springtails up is, uh, is a pretty good bet. I think that's another quality that makes them a pretty good beginner species is that they're just so hardy. I mean, they'll eat pretty much anything. They're, they're really just eating machines. I didn't have any issues with mine not keeping on weight. Sometimes you have issues with you know, certain individuals, I don't know what it is. Certain species tend to be a little bit more finicky than others. I know like Pamelio can be a little, a little tricky depending on your experience with them, but these guys are pretty much bulletproof. I didn't really have to do anything major with them. They keep weight on, they call they're healthy, etc. Just to back up a little bit. Another thing that I thought was interesting was I've always been interested in the different toxins that dart frogs produce. And obviously there's, 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 a myriad of species and obviously not everything produces the same toxins. Well, apparently, uh, Epipeta beta xanthonii produces a toxin called Epibeta, uh, well, let me just double check my notes here. Epibetadine, which is apparently, uh, has been studied for uses in, in human medicine, but it's actually so toxic that it can't be used for human medicine. Uh, it's actually chemically, from what I understand, it's actually very, very similar to nicotine. So that was kind of an interesting detail is that their their toxicity is very very close to nicotine. As a former smoker, I can tell you that nicotine is uh you know, you get too much nicotine, you knock down a whole pack of cigarettes, you're not going to feel too great. So I can't imagine eating one of these guys would feel pretty good for a predator. So all in all, this species is pretty versatile, pretty easy to care for. And again, this was just sort of a little run through real quick of some of the experiences that I've had. You guys might have had completely different experiences. That's totally cool. I just think that it's a great species. It's easy to care for. And I definitely think it's something that even, even experienced keepers can appreciate just for the just for the sheer boldness and all the activity that you get out of these guys. So, so check them out. You know, if you can score a if you can score a pair or a trio, it's a great way to get into breeding. Great way to just kind of figure out your dart hog husbandry with a species that's going to be a little bit more forgiving. So, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Catch up with you guys again soon.